And as we begin this morning, I would like to ask you a question for you to honestly consider. Why did God save you? If you are a follower of Jesus and you believe that Jesus, the Son of God, died on the cross, endeared your sin, your shame, your guilt, was resurrected on the third day, now that does answer how God saved you, but not why. Why did God save you? You might say, oh, well, because I, I repented and trusted in Jesus. No, that, that describes your response and how you've been saved. That doesn't answer why God saved you. Now, you could answer, because God loves me. Now, that would be a biblical and correct response. Yes, God did save you because he loves you. You could also say, if you read in Ephesians chapter 1, for example, that he has saved us for the praise of his own name, to display his glory. That's why he has saved you. And that also would be biblical and true. And yet, there's another answer that is just as biblical that oftentimes we don't think about that we're going to consider this morning on why God saved you. God saved you so that you might be holy. We just sung powerfully of our God who alone is holy. And God saved you so that you too could be holy. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says that God saved us, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So today we're going to meditate as we look at God's word on our calling as his people to be holy before him. And we're going to do it as we continue in our series in the book of 1 Peter, a series called Expatriate, Following Jesus in a Foreign Land. Now just to review, the book of 1 Peter is a letter written by the disciple, the apostle Peter, and he wrote it to several different groups of people that were living in modern-day Turkey. It was Asia Minor at the time in the, in, in the Roman Empire. And so chapter 1, verse 2, or verse 1 rather, tells us to Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. And so this region, modern-day Turkey, he writes this letter to them to encourage them. And he calls believers, again, they're in chapter 1, he calls them, verse 1, exiles, literally foreigners. And so believers in Jesus are referred to as foreigners. And so we've been learning so far the last couple of weeks that as followers of Jesus, we are citizens of heaven, that this world is not our home, that we're expatriates of heaven. Yes, we're expatriates in Abu Dhabi because our home country is elsewhere, it's true, but in the ultimate sense, we are expatriates because our home is not this world, it's in heaven. We are members of the kingdom of God. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And so as expats of heaven, how must we live? How do we continue to follow Jesus in this world? First Peter tells us. Let's continue as we study this book. We're in chapter 1, verses 13 through 25. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, 
Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Amen. Let me give you the primary truth that we're seeing in this section, in this passage of Scripture. The primary truth that we're seeing here is that as a people of God, our lives must be marked by holiness. This is what we're seeing here that we'll look at this morning together, that as the people of God, our lives must be marked by holiness. And so today, as we consider this, we're going to meditate on three specific truths revealed in this text on living holy lives before our God. Number one, we're going to see here the call to holiness. So if you're taking notes, number one, the call to holiness. Verses 13 through 17, that first section is where we see this first truth, that we are called by God to live holy lives, to be set apart, to be different from the world around us. We just read, you shall be holy for I am holy. If you're a disciple of Jesus, your Lord, your Master, your King calls you to a life of personal holiness. Now, as always, whenever we're reading or studying the Bible, whether it's on a Friday morning, whether it's in your home group, whether it's in your discipleship group, whether it's you individually in, in, whether in the mornings or your lunch break or in the evening, whenever you stop and read God's Word on your own and draw near to God, However you're doing that, alone or in community, regardless, we always want to look at context. You never study the Bible with one verse ripped out of context. Satan does that. Believers in Jesus ought never to read the scriptures pulled out of context because then you're missing what God is revealing. So last week, keeping this in its context, what we looked at in verses 3 through 12 we learned about a living hope. We saw that last week. How we have the hope of salvation and Christ through his spirit, being born again of his spirit. He fills us and he gives us hope and we rejoice and we have joy even in sorrow. No matter what we're facing, we have a living hope. We have an inheritance waiting for us. 
And so verse 13, he says, therefore. And so when you begin with the word therefore, you should see what is that word therefore. It's an important word. It's a transition. And so Peter is saying, in light of what I just finished revealing, in light of verses 3 through 12, now therefore, live this way. Do this in light of it. And so we've experienced God's mercy, we see in the previous section. We've been resurrected by the Spirit. We have this future inheritance waiting for us. And so a lot of that, therefore, be holy in all your conduct. So our calling to be holy comes only after, here's the key, this call to be holy comes after we have entered in to a saving relationship with God through faith. Very important that we understand the context here. We are called to be holy. But what does that mean? What exactly is this call to holiness? If you take notes, it's here on the screens. This call to holiness is the call to reflect the character of God. And so call to holiness is reflecting the very character of God. And so what it means for you and me to be holy is, first of all, know this, that we have no holiness. We have no glory of our own. We have no way that we could ever be holy. We are born in sin. We are corrupted. We have no hope of being holy like God is holy. Holiness describes the essence of God's infinite glories. He is holy. God equaled holy. Humans do not equal holy. We're not. And yet, we are called here to be holy, to reflect. So God is holy, but we're like mirrors who have his image, are to reflect the image of God. And so we are to be holy as a reflection of who he is, which is why in verse 15 and 16, we read that again here. He says, but as he who has called you is holy, so God is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And so God desires that his people be holy, be set apart, so that we can reflect his glorious character to the nations. He wants his glory to be revealed, and he reveals it through the lives of his people who live different, transformed lives by people that are satisfied in Jesus, who love him, who find their hope in him, are displaying the glory of God. We are reflecting his holiness to the world that's watching, that is desperate for him. And so that is our calling, to be holy, because God is holy. Now, let's be clear as we begin this conversation on being holy, is God knows that on this side of heaven, none of us will ever reach holy perfection. We can't. We will one day. One day after you die and you're resurrected and you are glorified, you will be holy because God is holy. But on this side of heaven, you won't reach holy perfection, but we are called in this text to pursue a holy direction. We are called to that, to follow Jesus as expats in this foreign land. So when you look at your life and you're honest with yourself, do you sometimes think, 
that there's just no hope for your holiness. You think, my holiness is very holy, as in there's holes in it. And it's, it's not really working. And I read this, and I see it, and I get it. I hear you. But man, I don't know. I don't know if there's any hope for my personal holiness. 1 Peter 1, 13-25 reveals in the authority of God's word that there is hope for your holiness. There is. There is hope for you. And we can live this because God would not call us to do it unless he would then empower us to actually accomplish it for his glory. The question for this morning is how? How do we answer this call to holiness? How does that actually work in the practicalities of daily living? How can we aspire to live a life that is reflecting the character of God? How do we do that with all of the sin that we struggle with every day? And with circumstances that can be really hard. How? 1 Peter 1 tells us how. Let's look at it together. Verses 13 through 17. And we're going to see how by identifying key words, like we should always when we study the Bible. We're going to look for the imperatives. What's an imperative? It's a command. If you're a parent and you tell your children, go clean your room, that's an imperative. I'm telling you, go clean your room. If you say, would you like to clean your room? Well, that's an interrogative. That is a question. Don't ask. Tell them, go clean your room. That's an imperative. It's a command. We're going to identify the imperatives in this text. What are the commands that God is giving? And then we're going to find the key words that modify those imperatives that help us see how. Well, okay, here's the commands. How do I do it? It's in the text. And so we're going to first see what, what are the commands and then key words that describe to us, well, how do you accomplish those commands? First command that we see in this text, in verse 13, the command in that verse is set your hope. That's an imperative. We are told to do it. Set your hope. Not a question. It's a command. This is foundational. If you want to live a life of holiness where you're really growing in your sanctification and you're becoming more like Jesus, the first thing that you must do is set your hope. There's a reality here. This is putting it into real terms. This is not abstract, ethereal. This is real, down to earth, in Abu Dhabi, living here, gathering the Emirates Park Zoo. There's a reality to this. That hoping in God leads to growth and sanctification. It leads to growing spiritually. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. She's saying, set your hope, and he gives the object. The object is the grace of God, God's glorious grace that will be revealed fully one day when Jesus comes back, and he's going to display his glory for everyone to see, and every knee will bow and those of us that love him now and that we bow down joyfully and we, we humble ourselves and we say, Jesus, I'm desperate for you. You are my king and I worship you. I find my joy and my purpose in you alone. Those of us that have bent the knee now, we're going to be rejoicing when he comes back. 
but all those that have refused and reject his kingship and don't want to obey King Jesus, when he comes back, they too are going to bend the knee against their will before being cast into the lake of fire, which is very painful. Wow, we're here to tell people the good news. that There's a king, and the glory is going to be revealed. And are you ready for his coming? Do you love the king? There's a coming glory that's going to be revealed fully. But you know what's amazing? Right now, we have a taste of it. We have a taste of this glory to be revealed fully. We experience it right now. And we experienced it earlier when we were praying together. We experienced it earlier when we were reading his word. We experienced it earlier today when we were singing the praises of King Jesus experiencing his, his presence, his spirit in us. And we experience it individually. And then together we praise him. We have a taste of his sanctifying presence right now. We are the new creations. We have been born again of his spirit. And so we don't have to wait fully. Yes, it will be revealed completely. But we can enjoy his presence now. And we set our hope in Christ. How? How do we set? So there's a command. Set your hope. How? How do you do that? How do you actually every day set your hope in God? Verse 13 tells us. He says, by, he says two things, by preparing your minds for action and by being sober-minded. So the command is set your hope on God. How? And then he has these two things, by your mind. Have your mind ready for action and be sober-minded. Now, that first phrase literally means gird up the loins of your mind. Now, that sounds a little bit weird. Like, well, I don't know what do you mean to gird up the loins of your mind. Explain that because I'm a little bit confused now. The image described here on set your mind to action is the image of a man wearing a long robe. And we, we've seen that here. A lot of people in Abu Dhabi wear long robes. Men wear them. And so the image here is of taking the long robe and picking it up and tucking it into your belt so that you can run. Like I have seen people here that wear long robes riding bicycles. And I don't understand how that works. But they have to gird up the loins. They have to take the robe and pull it up and tuck it up so that they can ride their bicycle and have the action of that. And so what you're seeing here is this call to action. So that's why the text in verse 13 says, prepare your minds for action. And so get ready for battle. Don't be idle-minded. Our minds must be engaged and ready to battle the enemy. And then he says, being sober-minded. So this is the key to being able to set our hope on God and be able to be more holy is to gird up the loins of your mind and to be sober-minded. And so we can't be drunk. We need to be sober. And I mean this literally. A believer in Jesus ought never get drunk. Never. I'm not saying it's evil to have a drink. But to be drunk is out of the question. Sober-minded. Thinking clearly. Those who get drunk are doing so because they have not set their hope on God. 
And so by getting drunk, you want to numb everything, numb the senses and not feel and not face the problems, not face the enemy, but run away and escape. And so setting your hope on God is being prepared for action, being sober-minded. But lest we be too, too hard on those that drink, all of us, if we're not careful, can find other ways to escape or other ways to numb our mind other than alcohol like excessive movies or hours of mind-numbing TV or hours of social media where you're literally scrolling down. It's like, how many hours are you going to spend just looking at your Facebook? It's mind-numbing. And if you're honest, it's an escape. It's no different from getting drunk. It's an escape. Rather than facing reality and having your, your mind ready for action, and rather than being sober-minded, you're trying to numb the problems and not deal with whether it's your spouse or your kids or that struggle that you know that you aren't putting your hope in God over. So you have to gird up the loins of your mind so that you can be sober-minded and think clearly. So here's a question for you. What dominates your thinking? Is your mind ready for spiritual battle? We're in a war zone. We forget that because we live in Abu Dhabi. And it doesn't feel like a war zone because Abu Dhabi really tends to be the eye of the hurricane in, in this region. And yet, as much peace as we have and stability, which we're so thankful for in this city, in this country, we're in a spiritual war zone. And a lot of us have put down the weapon, we've taken off the armor, and we're just laying back, sipping margaritas, and we're just not really realizing what we're in, which is a war zone. You need to pick up the armor, you need to put on the helmet, you need to pick up your weapon, and then to get to work. Battle the enemy. Have your mind fully engaged. How do we do that? It's about having your mind engaged in Christ. The battle to grow, the battle to have more holiness is a battle for the mind, is what we're seeing here. So if you don't spend time reading God's word and really focus your thinking and meditating on it and praying and experiencing God's presence and really spending time with God Focus on his word and who he is. You will not have your mind engaged and you will not grow in holiness. It's not possible. Because God has told us that if you want to be holy how he is holy, prepare your mind. Be sober-minded. And by the way, this is a disclaimer, I am not talking about reading books about Jesus. It's amazing how many people just read books about the gospel or spend hours upon hours surfing the internet for gospel-centered websites and gospel-centered blogs and articles and reading about Jesus and reading about someone else's walk with Jesus, and yet you don't put the book down and actually do it yourself. Maybe you should read a little bit less about Jesus and actually talk to him and read his word. And I'm not saying don't read about Jesus. 
I love reading. And by this is a confession of mine. I can very easily catch myself at times reading too much other books. And sometimes I need to remember, wait, wait, wait. Put down the books and pray more. Meditate more. Think about Jesus more. Is your mind focused on Jesus himself? Reading does not equal doing. Do you talk to him? This is critical. There's a battle for holiness. There really is. And I'm telling you, the minute that you begin to take this seriously is the same minute the enemy is going to attack you. Because he doesn't, our enemy is saying, he doesn't want you to have your mind ready for action and being sober-minded. He wants you to have your mind focused on different things because he knows. He knows what will happen. The key here is your hope. I know that you're going to doubt. You're like, is it going to make a difference? Really? Is reading this book really going to make a difference? Is praying? Really? Yes. Yes, it will. Yes, it will. Some days it won't feel like it. But yes, it will make a difference. You keep reading and focusing on Jesus. The Spirit's going to help you to overcome the despair or the frustration, or whatever you're going through, and it will make a difference. And it'll help us to have Jesus be our treasure and truly be our joy, set our hope on him. The second command in verses 14 through 16, there's one, and it's be holy. So the the command, the imperative there is be holy. So the key here with the call to be holy is knowing who you are. Know who you are as defined by God through his gospel. John 4, I mean, verse 14 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So he's, he's saying something about having a new nature. You're not the same person anymore. Don't be conformed to the way you used to be formerly. You've been changed now. You've been born again of the Spirit. And he calls them obedient children. Now, the phrase there, it literally is children of obedience, is the more literal translation. Kind of awkward for English, so it's, it's more natural to say obedient children. But, but the image here of children of obedience is a picture of someone that is so characterized. They're so defined by obedience that it's as though obedience is the parent. It defines who they are. So if you're a believer in Jesus, you are no longer enslaved to your sin. You've been set free. Why he says, you don't have to be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Remember who you are. You're born again of the Spirit. You're a saint before God. You're part of a faith family. You have an eternal purpose. You're forgiven. You don't have to be enslaved to sin anymore. Remember who you are. Focus on that. The third command here, verse 17, he says, conduct yourselves with fear. So that word conduct, that is the the command, verse 17. Let's read that here briefly. It says, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So there's there's the command, conduct yourselves. And so he's talking in this verse of those that have trusted and repented in Jesus, He says, if you call on him as father, he's your father, 
He says that he's going to judge one day impartially. Everyone's going to be judged based upon their merit. And people that have not trusted in, in Jesus, that God is not their father, they're going to be judged on their own works, on their own merit. And it's going to be a guilty verdict. He says, but those of us that have God as father, we don't fear judgment day because we know the verdict. It's going to be innocent. Not because we're actually innocent, but because Jesus already was condemned for us. He was already punished for us. He already paid the price on our behalf. And we're trusting in his sacrifice that he did for us. And so on that day, when we stand before our father, who's also the judge, he's going to say, innocent. And he will let us enter into his kingdom. Because he's our father who loves us. And so we don't fear the verdict. But we are called here, he says, to fear God. So there's, there's this reverent fear of God that we're called to have. And so in order for us to live lives of holiness, we need a reverence for God, a respect for who he is. He is holy and he is the living God. And so we must also be holy to reflect that character. So we're seeing here this first section, verses 13 through 17, that we're called to holiness. We see the call. Second truth, number two, see the foundation of holiness. So we see the call to holiness, not the foundation for holiness. And this second truth is found in verses 18 through 21. So what exactly is this foundation for our holiness? If you're taking notes, it's also on the screens. Our foundation is the person and work of Jesus Christ. The person work of Jesus is our foundation that enables us to even attempt to be holy. Verses 18 through 19 reveal that there is only one reason that we even can be holy. It says, you were ransomed from your feudal ways. You've inherited from your forefathers with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. And so he says that we're to be holy because we've been liberated from our slavery to sin, ransomed. The price has been paid to liberate a slave. That's us. So what was happening with the exodus that we read early in the worship gathering, what was happening with the exodus from Egypt was the pattern that was pointing to our liberation from slavery to sin, accomplished through the ultimate Lamb of God, Jesus. And so he paid the price and so he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so therefore, now we can live a holy life. Verses 20 and 21 in the same text reveal that God the Father knew the Son. Before anything existed, God knew the Son. And he sent him to save us from our sin. And it says that he was raised from the dead. And so because of the person of Jesus... As the Lamb of God takes away our sin and his work as the sacrifice, so the person and work of Jesus says we now have our faith and hope in God. So we do have hope because of Christ's work to save us. And so there is hope for your holiness. But what's the motivation? Why should you? Why should you go through the work of being more holy. Now, if you're here 
and you follow a religion, then probably, if I were to guess, your motivation to be a good person, your motivation to follow all of the religious rules that your religion tells you to do, your motivation for doing all of these good things and trying to be holy is so that you can get salvation or God's approval. And you're trying to do all of these good things so that God will then accept you and you can earn your way to heaven. So you're following all the religious expectations and rules to get points, so to speak. But as followers of Jesus, what's our motivation for obedience? Why should we? What's the motivation? It's not salvation because you've already been saved. So we're not to try to be holy so that we can reach salvation. You already have it. You've already been forgiven because of Jesus' work on the cross. God already accepts you. You already have his approval. So since you already have salvation, why should you obey? Love. The motivation for a believer to obey God is love. We've already experienced the grace of God, his mercy. He has saved us. And so, because he loved us first, we love him. And out of this love for Jesus, we desire to obey him, to please him. And it's no different from other relationships. There's a reason why God has revealed that marriage is a picture of the love that Jesus has for his people. It's a picture of the relationship that we have with God. If you had a man that would say, I love my wife, but she just doesn't satisfy me anymore. I need other women to meet my needs. Now, I would imagine that you would go to your friend and you would say something like, dude, you don't really love your wife. Because if you loved your wife, then you wouldn't even want to have other women. If, if your wife was satisfying you, and if you had a relationship that was meaningful to you, if you valued your wife, then you wouldn't even want to look to other women to quote-unquote meet your needs. Every time that we sin, we go after an idol, we are committing adultery on God. That's what our sin is at its essence. It's a violation of this love relationship that we have with God. It's cheating on him, going to something else to satisfy us, going to our idols to find pleasure and joy and meaning and fulfillment. When God says, you have me, what more do you need? And we say, well, we need more than you, God, because you can't fill me. So then we go to other things. We go to our idols and we're committing adultery. So the motivation for our obedience should be love. Having a deep, satisfying, meaningful relationship with God will motivate you, will propel you to a life of increased holiness. Remember, not a holy perfection on this side of heaven, but living with a holy direction. We begin to hate our idols the more that we love Jesus. The more that we experience his presence in our lives, the more that we don't want the idols as much. 
Is it possible this morning that you've been minimizing your sin? Yes, you know you have it. We all do. But maybe you've been minimizing it. Maybe you're flat out denying it. No, I'm not. You're the problem, not me. So that's even worse, but both are bad, clearly. You know what can happen to us? Very easily. It can happen to any of us. Is What we all tend to do is we look at our situation. And ours is unique because all of us are unique. We have unique and particular situations in our lives. And, but then we think that what we're going through is completely unique from anyone else on the planet. And so then we, we look at how hard our circumstances are. And we think, well, no one else has these unique set of circumstances. And no one else has it as hard as I have it. So then we begin to excuse ourselves. And we give ourselves a pass. And we say to ourselves things like, well, I deserve a break. Or we'll say, I just need to escape. Or, well, it's not that bad. Well, God will forgive me anyway. Or at least I'm not hurting anyone. And we tell ourselves these things, and we believe the lie. And we do it knowingly. We choose to believe the lie. What is the lie? That this world and what it has to offer is more satisfying than having the presence of God in your life. We believe that the idol will satisfy us. So what we need is the grace of God. We need help, this living hope that helps us through his spirit, helps us to fight against these lies and believe the truth. Jesus didn't abandon us when he went to heaven. He left his spirit to help us to do what? To see, to see what? To see Jesus, to see that Jesus is our hope that he is our hope for holiness, that Jesus commands us to holiness, to see that he is the motivation for our holiness, to see that Jesus is the source of strength for our growth in holiness, to see that Jesus is a final prize, that he is worth it, that Jesus is better. We need his help to see it, to truly believe it, to remember that we are not citizens of this world we're citizens of heaven and beg him to change our desires as we saw in the first point focusing our minds on him you see this kingdom of this world is not our home we're not members of the kingdom of heaven and there's different values just like in abu dhabi different countries i've learned have different values and do things differently well The kingdom of heaven has different values from the kingdoms of this world. But we belong to God's kingdom. And so we need to adopt those values and living according to God's agenda, which is holiness. So number one, we see here, reviewing, that we're called to holiness. Number two, there's a foundation for holiness, which is the person and work of Jesus. Number three, the result of holiness. So what is the result of holiness? This third truth, we see it in the last section here, verses 22 through 25. We'll read two of those verses, verses 22 and 23. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, 
love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. So what is this? He says you've been purified by your obedience to the truth. We've been declared holy. We've been made pure. Why? Because we've obeyed the truth, we've responded to the gospel. So this truth here is referring to the good news, the gospel that he mentions in end of verse 25. And so what we're seeing here is that we've been declared righteous, purified, declared holy, because we have believed the gospel. And so the Spirit then helps us to grow in our actual daily holiness, all because of the gospel. Born again of God's Spirit. We have actually been transformed. The power of sin is broken, and he mentions imperishable. And so we now have an imperishable hope. It's eternal, not perishable, born again by an imperishable seed, by the Spirit who is eternal. And until that day comes when Christ returns and we're glorified, we continue following Jesus. So what are we seeing here? What is this result of this being transformed? What is the result? If you're taking notes. Love for others. What is the result of holiness? Love for others. For a sincere brotherly love. Love one another from a pure heart. We should spur each other on to holiness, especially when it's hard. We need each other. We can't be successful without each other. We need to be committed to each other. Why do you think we emphasize church membership? Because when you become a church member, what you're saying is, I want to be held accountable to the other members. I need them, and they need me, and I'm responsible for the other members of this church. I'm responsible for their growth, and they're responsible for my growth, so that we're watching for each other's backs. So we emphasize membership, because it's good for you to be held accountable. We all need this. We need each other. Why do we have home groups? So you can share your lives with each other, share your burdens, and share your victories. And study the word together. Be encouraged. You need to be in a home group. Why do we have discipleship groups? Groups of three or four people of the same gender that meet once a week, study the word, hold each other accountable, and after several months, multiply and disciple two or three new people so that we're now seeing in this church a culture of discipleship taking root, people involved in these small discipleship groups. If you want to join one or a home group or be a member, just email me. Go to the church website. I'll guide you. And you can experience the kind of community that you need. Let me be honest with you for a minute. Without this church, I don't know, this last year has been really hard. If, if it hasn't been for my home group and the love of this faith family, I don't know where I'd be with my wife. It's been a really hard year. A lot of you don't know this, but about two years ago, we began the process to adopt. And one year ago last week, we were matched with twin baby boys from Ethiopia, and we visited them, we have seen them, we've held them. Bon has gone back five times to visit these twin boys, and we've been told for nearly a year now, just a few more weeks and you bring your babies home. Just a few more weeks, you bring your babies home. Just a few more weeks, you bring your babies home. And it's now been close to a year of living with your life on hold and the heaviness on my chest. 
And when we can get through a day without tears, it's a good day in my home. And my home group has been so remarkable, praying for us, and in this darkness, calling us and even laughing with us and crying with us and asking. And every day they ask, I say, I don't know. Every, they call. Like, I mean, it's almost every day someone asks, so, news from Ethiopia. And I, all I say is, no news. No news. I don't know. There's a lot of red tape. We don't know when we're going to bring these boys home. But watching them grow up from a distance, not being able to hold them or feed them, and watching them grow up in an orphanage when you think of these as your children and knowing that they're actually not your children and knowing that we're not promised these children. And if it's not in God's will, then we will still praise God because Jesus is still better. And it's been this faith family, and particularly your home group, that has just held us up. And I'm so thankful. And if you don't have a home group, and if you don't have people in your life that are going to be there to hold you up when it's hard, then you're not going to grow in holiness. You can't. It's too hard. We need each other. Desperately. Sometimes it gets hard and, and we get crossways. Sometimes we offend each other. Sometimes we hurt each other, and not, not on purpose, but it happens. And when that happens, we need to forgive and show grace and, and go to that person and reconcile so that we love with this sincere, brotherly love earnestly from a pure heart. So I ask you, is there someone, maybe even in this room, that you're not reconciled with? Will you commit this week, today, to call that person? So let's get some coffee. We need to talk. And share your burdens and work towards reconciliation. It's the only way that you can grow in holiness. Because if you think that you're growing and you're sanctification and you have friendships that are not reconciled, then you're not growing in your sanctification. You're only deceiving yourself. You cannot claim to love your God, when you don't love your brother whom you can see. There's hope. There is hope for us and hope for our holiness. So what do you do when you're in a dark place? You keep looking to Jesus. What do you do when you're struggling with anger? You keep looking to Jesus. What do you do when you're feeling tempted? You keep looking to Jesus. You keep looking to Jesus until those strongholds in your life finally crumble down and the Spirit of God comes in and begins to heal and transform you and grow you in your holiness. We keep looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We keep our eyes fixed on Him. We focus on Him and we do it in community. And what's the result? Holiness. The glory of God revealed in Abu Dhabi so that the mission is accomplished of glorifying God by making and then developing disciples.
And this church is a place where we have a bunch of broken people, beginning with your pastor, who need the grace of God and we need each other. And this is a place where we want to be real. So if you want to come in here and you want to be a phony and pretend, then really you're not going to fit in. You're not going to fit in in this church if you want to be a fake. We're real. Real people who are desperate for Jesus have a real mission to accomplish for him. We need each other, and we're thankful for each other. As the people of God, we must live lives marked by holiness. May we represent our God to Abu Dhabi and to the nations for his glory so they can see that Jesus is Will you please pray with me? Father, we thank you that you have loved us, given us the joy of being able to love you. We thank you for our salvation. We thank you for giving us each other. We thank you that we can reflect your glory as we live lives of transformation and of holiness. And that's what we want desperately. We want more of you in our lives. Fill us. Help us to turn to you and to look to you, Jesus. For you truly are better. We pray for your glory's sake.